Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome everyone to ANU Learning Communities Great Green Debate. ANU Learning Communities is a student-led organisation bringing people together through interdisciplinary learning. We run events across fields of creative arts, cultures, sustainability, global challenges and history, encouraging learning and connection amongst students, staff, alumni and members of the wider community. Each year, Learning Communities hosts the Great Green Debate. Topics from previous years have included Does Australia have to choose between the economy and the environment? The role of business in shaping a sustainable future? And is it possible to have a just transition away from fossil fuels? I thank you all tonight for braving the weather and coming out to ponder tonight's question, Should Australia Declare a Climate Emergency? I'd like to thank Sarah for her fantastic acknowledgement of country and to also pay my respects to the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and also to recognise the importance of Indigenous voices and perspectives in tackling climate change. First, a bit of obligatory housekeeping. If this debate gets a bit too heated, we have emergency exits on the left and right. <laughs> there are toilets just outside on this level, and there will be photography throughout the event, So if you do not wish to be photographed, please just let the photographer know. Tonight, we'll be hearing from a tremendous panel drawing on scientific, policy, economic and political backgrounds. We also will have a software that will engage with your perspectives throughout the debate. We are very lucky to have Martin Pierce and Professor Sharon Bessel chairing the discussion. They are quite accustomed to working together as regular co-presenters on the Policy Forum pod, and tonight's debate will be recorded as an episode of this podcast. We are also thrilled to be joined by representatives from student environmental initiatives. At the end of the debate, they will be be giving a brief description of their work and are keen to chat and engage with you about how they engage with climate change questions after the debate. If this isn't enough to entice you, in the foyer, as well as our student representatives, there will also be free food. (laughs) So without further ado, I'd like to hand over to Martin and Sharon to introduce the panel members and get into the debate. Thank you so much, Maddie. And spot on there. Come for the uh, great chat, but stay for the free food. Sounds enticing. Well, uh, thank you for the introduction, Maddie. 
As Maddie said, my name is Martin Pierce. I am the Manager of Communications and Engagement at Crawford School of Public Policy here at the ANU. I'm also the editor of the website Policy Forum uh, and the producer of two podcasts, Policy Forum Pod and the Democracy Sausage Podcast. And I am really delighted to be here tonight. Um, I'm going to play a bit of a roaming role. I'm going to be sat here for a while, but I'm also going to be out in the audience. We're going to have some interactive elements to the discussions. Uh, uh, and I will keep the mic handy so that we can have some audience questions as well. And I will be uh, co-hosting tonight's debate, of course, with Professor Sharon Bessel here. Sharon, for those of you who don't know her, is a professor at Crawford School. She is the ANU lead on the Individual Deprivation Measure Project, which is an amazing project, which looks at a whole new way of measuring multi-dimensional poverty. You should absolutely check out uh, more about it. It's a, it's a fantastic project. Uh, Sharon is my fellow podcaster. We are regulars on Policy Forum Pod together, and she's very much the brains of the outfit. Uh, and uh, she tonight will make sure that my my stupid questions are balanced with sensible, educated, and uh, evidence informed ones. Now, uh, as Maddie said, this is a special event for Sharon and I because it is our first ever live episode of Policy Forum Pod, which is very exciting for us. Yeah, yes, and thank you for the uh, prompted applause there. That's really appreciated. So tonight's discussion will be out as a podcast tomorrow. So if you want to listen back, you want to relive some of your great questions or points, or you just want to share the event with people who couldn't make it along tonight, check out Policy Forum Pod tomorrow. We're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from. Policy Forum Pod, for those of you who don't know it, is a weekly podcast which is produced by Crawford School of Public Policy. Uh, each week we take an in-depth look into a pressing and important policy issue uh, and we tackle it from a sort of interdisciplinary perspective. We look at how it came about, why it matters and importantly how we might go about addressing it. We always try and take a, a very sort of positive forward-looking aspect to the podcast. So if you're interested in policy, if you're interested in the ideas of policy, please do check it out. So Sharon, how about I hand over to you and you set the scene for what we're going to be talking about tonight. Thanks, Martin. And thank you to everyone for coming along to this, our first live podcast. We're incredibly excited about this event. And there are a few issues that are more worthy of a, a first live podcast than the one that we're going to be talking about tonight. I just wanted to go off tangent for a moment um, to follow up on what Martin was saying about Policy Forum Net and to draw your attention to the fact that today is International Day for the Eradication of Poverty. Um, it's Anti-Poverty Week at the moment. And through... Um, policyforum.net that we have a special section in Focus Poverty and every day we're putting up um, an article over the next couple of weeks looking at how we can tackle poverty, how we can address poverty both locally, nationally and globally. So check that out as well. Tonight um, we are talking about one of the most pressing issues of our time. I think Kevin Rudd, as Prime Minister, said this was the greatest moral challenge of our time. It hasn't gotten any better since then. Um, so that climate is is a pressing issue, I think, is known to everyone here. You walk around the streets of Canberra, 
you follow the news, you go to any country in the world and you see the protests locally and internationally. We've seen climate strikes, we've seen Fridays for the Future, the Extinction, Extinction Rebellion movements, and we know that this issue is particularly pressing for young people and of course it is. This is, as I have said in the past, the most pressing issue of intergenerational equality or inequality that we have ever faced. One of the, the um, global figures um, that has emerged speaking so powerfully on this issue, of course, is 16-year-old Greta Thunberg um, at the Climate Action Summit in New York just a, a little while back. I don't think many of us will forget her words when she said, people are suffering, people are dying, ecosystems are collapsing, we are in the middle of a mass extinction and urged leaders to take action. One apparently simple step that some nations, dependencies, cities, individual organisations have taken is to declare a climate emergency. And so that is the issue that we are going to be talking through tonight. Should Australia declare a climate emergency? And to talk us through the issues, debate us through the issues, perhaps as it gets hot and people look for the emergency exits, I'm delighted to welcome our four guests. It's hard to imagine four people better able to speak through these issues. Dr Liz Hanna, next to me here, is a senior fellow right here at the ANU Fenner School and the Climate Change Institute. She was the founding president of the Climate and Health Alliance just Tuesday of this week, she presented on how climate inaction directly threatens our health and ultimate survival to a packed room at Parliament House. So glad to hear that was a packed room for the launch of Parliamentarian Friends of Climate Action. Next we have, and I'm, I must say, I congratulate the panel. I've got you in order here and you sat down of your own accord in order. That was very disciplined. So next we have Shane Rattenbury, MLA. I think Shane is known to most people here. ACT Greens member for Currajong Electorate, Minister for Climate Change and Sustainability. Oh no, you are out of order because I've got John next. But I'm going to introduce doc, uh, Dr Imran Ahmad. Imran is an honorary associate professor here at the ANU Fenner School. He has been the founding director of Future Earth Australia, where he led and established the Global Sustainability Initiative in Australia and Oceania. And finally, at the end, we have Professor John Hewson. John is honorary professor professorial fellow at the Crawford School, former leader of the Federal Opposition. He was an economist at the Australian Treasury, the Reserve Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and has been advisor to two successive Federal Treasurers and to the Prime Minister, to not the current Prime Minister, but to a former Prime Minister, I believe. <laughs> Thank you so much to each of you for coming along and joining us in this discussion tonight. Now, we're going to be asking our panellists about their opinion about whether Australia should declare a climate emergency very shortly, but we are really keen uh, to get our audience's views on this precise question and other questions. So throughout tonight, uh, we are going to be asking uh, questions and asking four questions using some whiz-bang technology, which we've barely tested. Uh, so what could possibly go wrong with this? Uh, so to take part, and I'm going to stand up for this because this might make it a little easier. To take part, you need to go to menti.com and use the code 3310. 
13. For any of you that would like to use uh, ANU's Wi-Fi, you can do that. Log in on um, ANU Secure. I'm looking at Lydia here. Is that right? Thank you. So log in on ANU Secure uh, to with the username green underscore debate and the password October 19. The details are on the screen now. Yeah, great. Okay. So that's how you do it. Uh, that will allow you into ANU's Wi-Fi system. If you are a sophisticated cyber actor, please do not hack ANU's uh, systems. <laughs> Sorry, Sharon, was it too soon for that? No, it's a wise boy. Okay, so has everybody done that? Everyone okay with that? So our first audience question is the obvious one. We would like to know your views on what we are here to talk about tonight. Should Australia declare a climate emergency? So could you please put in your responses now? It does feel like Eurovision. Very exciting. Nil point for presentation. All right. So we have got, this is going to be, again, much easier for me to stand up and see this. Uh, still a little bit of movement. So 78% of the people who have voted said yes, Australia should declare a climate emergency. 4% said no. And 18% said uncertain. What do you make of that, Sharon? I think so four who are saying no, that's really interesting and I think it will be really good to hear from that minority about their thinking on the issue and the 17% uncertain. Let's see if that goes one way or the other by the end of the discussion tonight. I see that four has dropped to three, oh, even, even whilst we've been talking there. You don't need to defend your position. <laughs> are people changing their minds out there already? Are we that convincing? Oh, and 16 has, we've got gone to 16 from 17. 16% uncertain. Okay, well, that's fantastic. Thank you, everybody, for casting your vote there. That's great to see. It's still moving around a bit. Okay, so now we'd like to ask our panellists about their opinion, and I'm hoping that their responses to this question will be as clear and convincing as the science on climate change. Uh, they will each have three minutes to present their answer to our great green debate question. We will be timing them and we will be stopping them using a borrowed countdown clock, the famous countdown clock, which we borrowed for tonight's event. So how about we start with you, Liz? You have three minutes. The clock is ticking. Um, okay. Thank you. Um, okay. So societies have, have, become obsessed with money. They, they worship the dollar, they disregard the environment, uh, and basically have prioritised the economy over things that relating to the environment. Problem is that economies do not nurture humanity. The environment does. It's air, food, water, a safe environment to live in, stable thermal, uh, thermal, thermal temperatures. Um, the climate change also is just one aspect of what we're doing to... Uh, part of this environmental destruction, which we're now doing on a planetary scale. Nine out of ten people breathe polluted air. Um, pollution has now contaminated every aspect of this planet, all the land, soils, rivers, oceans, air, um, and so that every part of this planet has, has done, is now degraded. We've got this fossil, fossil fuel fetish that's been going on, so we've now filled the air with greenhouse gases. Um, to the extent that we've now interfered with the global climate. Um, we're watching the sixth great extinction. Over a million species are threatened. 
Um, the, the loss is a rate of a uh, hundredfold what more than normal, um, except that we're one of those. And so this is really threatening humanity. We can't pretend we're not an animal. We can't pretend we don't need an environment. Um, and the other thing is, of course, that we are now cooking the planet. So we're making... It's, it's reaching a point where we're not going to be able to live or work in the increasingly hot parts of the world. So we've known the science for over 2,000, uh, over 200 years. We've seen the evidence since rising dramatically since about the 80s, since 70 in Rio, and then we've had this spread of IPCC and other, other strategies to try to reduce it. Emissions are continuing to go. So we're on a trajectory that's actually going to wipe out humanity. Now, from the health perspective, I think that's a crisis. I think we should be declaring a, an emergency because going softly, softly hasn't, hasn't changed it. Fantastic. Thank you, Liz. And stop the clock, Lydia. We didn't even get to the countdown clock. That was a, actually kind of a bit of a letdown for me. <laughs> but thank you for being so succinct, Liz. Okay, so perhaps if we hand over to Shane next, are you ready to go? Lydia, are you ready to reset the clock? You have three minutes starting now. Well, I'm going to kill the suspense by saying, yes, I think there should be a climate emergency declared. I know you'll be surprised by that, but for me the important thing is not whether it's officially declared or not. The reality is, is the world is in a climate emergency. Locally we've seen incredible record temperatures set in Canberra in recent times. January had an average temperature of 34.5 degrees, which is 6 degrees above our long-term average, and 4 degrees above any previous record. Across the summer, we had 24 days that were above 35 degrees Celsius, and that is four times higher than the long-term average. Now, these are extraordinary numbers, and we've seen July just passed was the hottest month ever recorded globally. These are the sort of scientific facts that are underlining the climate is changing rapidly, it's reflecting the scientific models we've long been told about, but we are now seeing it play out before our eyes. The ACT was the first state or territory jurisdiction in Australia to declare a climate emergency when the Assembly passed a motion to that effect in May. For me, this is not just about the symbolic statement. It's actually about being very clear that the Parliament owns that declaration. We need to embody that urgency in our day-to-day decision-making. That's what the effect of declaring a climate emergency is for me. It means governments need to be thinking every time they take a decision that can have a climate impact, are they taking a decision that reflects the urgency of the need to act? That is, for me, what a climate emergency is about. The other point I would make is it is important that it's not just a statement, but it does actually reflect action. Uh, And... You know, I am worried that in some places we see the statement being made but the action not coming through with it. Scientists have made it very clear that we need to be cutting our emissions dramatically in the coming decade. We are reaching that tipping point where if we don't do something soon, we will have left it too late and we'll have condemned future generations to changes that are going to be very difficult to live within. The IPCC has noted that to stay below 1.5 degrees C warming the world will need to cut its greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. And they have estimated that to do that would take around 2.5% of GDP in terms of the cost of taking action. Now, of course, we hear a lot of people say, we can't afford that. That will cripple our economies. We can't do that. I've got some really interesting figures for you to put that in context. Australia's World War I-related expenditure peaked at 20%, 20% of GDP in 1918. I hear it. And our World War II expenditure peaked at 38.5%. 
So if anyone ever tells you we cannot afford to act on climate change, remember those figures. It's a, a fraction of what earlier generations sacrificed when they were living in those periods of war. I look forward to the discussion later. Thanks, Martin. Shane, thank you for those comments and thank you for letting us play the music. That was <laughs> and I'm sure we're all perhaps not quite surprised to hear your position. Imran, can we please hand to you to give your position? Thank you, Sharon. Um, like Shane, I would also beat the surprise and say we should, Australia should declare a national uh, climate emergency uh, and we should join the global movement for enhanced climate action. Uh, and we need to do it precisely due to our own national interest. I mean, uh, it is, there is a global uh, concern, there is uh, a con- ethics, there are other justice issues but primarily also from an economic point of view, we need inclusive green growth, which will benefit our economy and promote sustainable development at the same time. So th- this, I mean, if you take, if you take um, uh, the economic approach, it is in our interest to do that. Uh, climate change is not a leftist issue. It is not an issue to raise funding for development. It is, in fact, the greatest market failure as outlined by Lord Stern and is putting Australian citizens at risk if substantive policies are not in place sooner. We've lost a decade, and we don't have the luxury to lose another one. Australia is a country that has conditions of both developed and developing world. The increasing frequency of extreme weather events is a clear sign that we are living in a world impacted by climate change and are already in an age of adaptation. The science clearly points out that business as usual is no longer acceptable, and being a G20 country, we not only have the resources, but also the responsibility to act on climate change. Despite overwhelming consensus of global scientists through peer-reviewed research, we're still debating the fundamentals of climate change in Australia, whether climate change is a man-made issue or not. It's not within this debate, but it's happening in the country. While science has settled this question, the politics in Australia has not. The issue in Australia is more complex, particularly in the political arena, where it is not a bipartisan issue. Uh, Among other things, the recent Australian election also brings a sharp reminder that the Australian society is still not ready for the transformative changes the economy needs to transition to a low-carbon society, notwithstanding the many substantive actions taken at state and territory levels. So we need to do further consult, further sort of uh, inform our citizens, citizens to, to uh, engage the debate. I plead the need to enhance the dialogue with communities to raise their awareness and understanding of why substantive climate action is in the national interest of Australia. Uh, we usually talk to the converted, which is important, uh, we need to get the stakeholder communities informed and mobilized on the issue, and in particular the coal, the regional, coastal communities, and first Australians, as also pointed out by Sarah, impacted by policies to address climate change. All right, so yeah, time's up there. Thank you very much, Imran. And thank you for giving us the opportunity to actually hear the full uh, countdown theme there. Now, uh, that, that, was, that was wonderful stuff. We're going to hand over to John. Now, John, uh, before the event got started, assured me that he could do this in less than 10 seconds, so there would be absolutely no need for the countdown clock. 
So, John, are you ready to go? Your three minutes starts now. My answer is just yes, definitely. <laughs> and I can add some detail if you like. Um, I've felt these issues for 30 years. I mean, I started with a policy in the early 90s to cut emissions in this country by 20% by the year 2000 of a 1990 base. And by the way, I had full coalition party room support for that position. Unusual position today. And uh, I just think that if we'd put a price on carbon back in the early 90s and we'd done 20% a decade, we'd be so far ahead of the Paris commitments it wouldn't matter and we would have created hundreds of thousands of jobs and billions of dollars of investment over the period for that transition. Um, I feel it very strongly because if you look at the global challenge, the world on average has to cut emissions by 50% from the current level by 2030 to get to net zero emissions by 2050, which is probably the bare minimum we should be aiming for on a global basis. A few weeks ago, I supported the independents in the parliament to introduce a piece of legislation calling for the parliament to vote on a climate emergency. I think it's fundamentally important that every, and that be a conscience vote. It is a moral issue, as well as an economic, social and political issue. A conscience vote uh, where every individual member of parliament and senator would be held accountable by their constituency to their position on climate. And I think it's about time we actually force them into that position. And more recently, not only have there been others join that, that movement, but yesterday the Labor Party came out in support of a climate emergency. So we're building the momentum uh, for that. Uh, I think the issue is far too important to be left to politicians. And I think as a medium-term solution, we've got to focus on the transition to a low-carbon society by 2050. And the way perhaps to do that is to take it out of politics put it into a transition, climate transition commission, which has the fundamental responsibility to look at the transition for all of us, that we all have a part to play in each of the sectors, in power, in transport, in agriculture, in industrial processes, in buildings, in whatever, uh, and uh, households, companies, institutions. I um, mean, it is, it is a collective responsibility. And as a major, we may have low level of... Uh, total emissions in terms of the globe, but we are a major export, the second largest export of fossil fuels. We have a global responsibility. We contribute about 15 to 17% of global emissions, not Mr Morrison's 1.3%. And um, I think we have a global responsibility as well as a national responsibility. The place to start, declare a climate emergency, focus attention, policies on that transition. Thank you, John, and thank you to each of our panellists for getting us started. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, or maybe not when I look at the figures, but you may be thinking this is to be a debate, and yet everyone seems to be in furious agreement. <laughs> but, of course, this is one issue on which the science is unequivocal. The science is, is perhaps clearer on this issue than any other, and we are in the country's leading research Research Institute, and so perhaps we shouldn't be surprised that the debate is informed by the science. Where the discussion, the challenge, the informed and passionate debate may come is what we do, how we move forward, what is a climate emergency, is that the right way to go, and that's where we're headed now to delve deeper into those issues.
Yeah, so they were fantastic presentations. Thank you to everybody. And now that we've heard everyone's standpoints and views on this, uh, we want to go into sort of unpacking uh, some of those responses a bit. But before we do that, uh, I'm curious to know the audience's thoughts on a few questions that we are going to pose to you. So once again, I'm going to stand up to do this. Perhaps, Sharon, you want to go and stand over there so that we can both see it this time around. Could you please respond in the same way that you did before to the three statements? Number one, the country is ahead of others when it comes to climate action. Number two, government bodies are doing enough in terms of climate action. And number three, the public is engaged in climate change debates and you vote on a scale of one to five, how strongly you agree or disagree with those statements. So if you could please put your votes in now. Gosh, some of those dials are barely moving, Sharon. Liz, can you Not see that through the banner? Okay, has everybody had a chance to vote there? There's some very interesting responses. What do you make of that, Sharon? So I think we see from this the need for the kind of debate that we're having tonight, the kind of deep discussion about what we do. On the question of the, or the statement, the country is ahead of others when it comes to climate change, Strongly disagreeing is where the majority of people are sitting. Uh, 1.5 is, uh, is pretty much at that, at that point, isn't it? And on the second one, government bodies are doing enough in climate action. We obviously have to explain this for our podcast listeners. Uh, that has got a score of 1.3, which is strongly over towards the strongly disagree scale. And on the third scale, or the third question, the public is engaged in climate change debates. Well, that's 2.9. That's just over the midpoint. So people have kind of mixed feelings about that. Any thoughts, Sharon? Well, I think it's interesting, John, particularly reflecting on your comments about what had happened when you were in the Parliament and what appeared to be action, you know, perhaps 10 or more years ago, or at least the beginnings of action more than 10 years ago, 20 years ago, um, whether the answer to that question of whether the country is ahead of others when it comes to climate change would look very different if we had seen concerted action from our political leaders, our business leaders and, and others across the country you know, when these issues first emerged rather than most people feeling that we're far behind. Yeah, well, if only. So, Sharon, how about you come and sit back down and we'll start getting into some of those questions. And perhaps, John, if I can throw a question to you first... <coughs> Uh, just help us with a definition here. What would it actually mean to declare a climate emergency and what would change? Well, the cynics would say not much in the sense that you would get a, a, a position stated by the parliament in support of a climate emergency. But as Shane said, it's turning that into action that becomes important. And I think if there was that level of conscience support uh, in the parliament whoever was in power would feel that they needed to accelerate their response to the challenge. And, um, you know, there are options everywhere. There are opportunities everywhere. It's always sold as a negative. I tend to look at the positives and what's achievable. And uh, the upside is enormous for a country like Australia. And in those terms, I think you can translate a state position to, a, uh, to an action plan, which is what we've got to get to. But right now, we just have short-term politics scoring points on each other every day and going backwards as a nation. Liz, I wanted to bring you in now. You said in your fantastic introductory comments um, that the um, situation that we are in is impacting dramatically on people's health. 
um, and suggested that if that's not an emergency, you don't know what is. Mm. I wanted to just give you the chance to talk through that a little bit more, to talk about why you see this as such an emergency, as an emergency, and to tell us a little bit more about the ways in which climate change is already affecting Australia and Australians. Okay. Um, there's, without doubt, uh, there are people in countries overseas that are suffering infinitely more than we are at the moment. Um, but that's certainly not any justification for us to sit back and think it's okay, it's only them, it's not going to happen to us. It is already happening to us. Um, the What we're seeing at the moment, of course, is the increasing... as as CSIRO and the Bureau and the IPC and all the science would, was going to tell us, that we're having, going to have increasing droughts, increasing longer and deeper droughts, increasing longer, hotter heat waves, um, storms and tropical cyclones that have uh, high winds. And, of course, it's the Category 5s are the ones that are causing the problems. So there's been a definite increase in, in all of those, um, unquestionable, um, and so what we're finding is the impact that that's actually having on the health and well-being and welfare of, of Australians. The, in, when I was in northeast Victoria on a, on a farm for, um, for 10 years, that was through the, the millennium drought and also the fires that just raged on our... We could see Mount Buffalo burn for six weeks. The fatigue that you'd see amongst the farmers that was happening then. Um, and, of course, what we've got is the similar sort of... Uh, event happening um, in the northern parts in New South and and throughout. Um, And so this actually impacts people's very lives. We have farmers committing suicide because they see no no viability. They they go to the wall, and this is where economics is is important because we know that people without an income, you know, there's the the sliding scale really of uh, of, uh, health status that's related to to your um, economic level. Um, and so when you find people who are looking down the barrel of, of uh, bankruptcy, not being able to rebuild their lives again, um, and, and therefore they internalise it because particularly with the farmers, uh, all the predecessors have been able to live through droughts, but I'm the one that failed. So they internalise this as a human failure, uh, not being able to provide for their families, and hence the depression. So we're, what we're having is children on suicide watch for their parents, um, which is a shocking way to be. Um, and, of course, with the increasing heat, we're finding uh, the emergency physicians are, are certainly one of the best sources of information with the increasing flood of people coming through the doors on hot days. We're finding already the loss of um, uh, productivity uh, because people can't work in the heat. Um, and even even children are, are killing over and suffering, so it's suffering in the heat. So it's not only not only the elderly that suffer heat, um, and so it's, psycholo- it's affecting us psychologically, it's affecting um, financially and your, your sense of stability that I'm going to be okay in the future, you know, which is that cohesion that keeps rural communities together, families together, um, and certainly the, the, the young. Um, and there's been an increase definitely in climate grief, uh, which is justified. And so will the language of emergency help with these emergencies that we're facing. It, it, yeah, interesting point, because there's, uh, there's been the, the, the back push or the pushback uh, from that, saying that it might put, push people into, you know, oh, goodness gracious me, and complete despair. Um, and we'd argue that, well, the pussyfooting around hasn't, hasn't done anywhere near enough to change it. So 
that's why I'm very firm in saying that we should call it an emergency. And again, it gets back to the psychology. If people are not thinking that this is critical and it's just, it's just Bangladesh or it's just, you know, Syria and Sudan, all those other things where the, the drought has triggered the conflict and the wars. Um, so if people think it's just somewhere else, they won't necessarily think that they need to do something because the other point is it's not just governments and they have an enormous important role but every single person on the planet collectively we caused it collectively we need to stop it um, and that's every decision whether we ride the bike today you know what we eat what we just everything we do and hence the, the wall footing that Shane was talking about um, because without without us really taking this seriously it, it's not pretty not pretty Thanks, Sue. Imran, if I could bring you in now. We, as I think we all know, we have a, a Prime Minister currently who once famously arrived in Parliament with his very own lump of coal. We've had a number of difficult moments with our Pacific neighbours of late over a perceived lack of activity in tackling climate change within Australia. Where does Australia stand when it comes to climate change action and how are we being viewed by other nations in our region, but more broadly around the world? Uh, thank you, Sharon. Um, I think I think the answer to this, frankly, is that we're not viewed very favorably in terms of climate actions globally. In terms of our capacity, we have greater capacity uh, to act on climate change. We have greater resources, uh, and we're not doing enough. Uh, and there, there are... There is research out there domestically from climate change authority, from universities that say that we need to do more. Now, in terms of the, in terms of Pacific, uh, now uh, we say we're they are our neighbors, we care for them, but their greatest concern is climate change because they will be out of existence, and we're not actually doing much on that, and and so we're actually hurting them. In, in certain ways. Uh, so I, I think we, we need to really lift up. And, 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 and lift up, like I said, it, it, it is actually in Australia's own national interest. There's a lot of scare around China is here everywhere and in the Pacific and all that. But, the, but okay, then let's act on climate change and help the Pacific and, and, and do more on climate change at home. Uh, so that's, 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 uh, that's a short answer uh, uh, to, to your question. Uh, the other issue uh, that is that we've got only one point something percent of GHG emissions. So um, compared uh, globally, I mean, it's nothing. But 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 that's that's so that's such a fundamentally wrong approach to have. Is you don't factor in your your economic status. You don't factor in your leadership ability. You don't factor in. Um, the fact that there is a moral responsibility. So I, I think we, we, we need to get out of this debate that we have just, I've, I've, I've talked to people and they said we have just 1% of emission, why should, we're doing much more than what we can. Uh, forget about the fact that we took, uh, you know, what we did with the Kyoto accounting rules and all that. I mean, that's a larger debate. But, but I think we need to do much more. Imran, thanks for that. John, I wonder if I could bring you in on the second part of that question, because I'd be interested to hear your perspective on that. How do you think Australia is viewed internationally by other nations? Well, we're definitely seen as a laggard, and um, I think people are bewildered by the fact that a country that is so resource-rich in the things that matter, 
like sun and wind and uh, and uh, the capacity, the technology to turn that into baseload power, perhaps the cheapest in the world. We have unusual concentrations of key elements of, say, the lithium-ion battery, both lithium and graphite, which very few countries in the world do. The potential for us to contribute to the storage issue is phenomenal, and so you can go on. And we've, we're seen to ignore our, the reality of our position, to take the 1.3% of global emissions as your benchmark, as, as Morrison did in his recent UN speech, when in fact we're the second largest exporter of fossil fuels in the world, so that number becomes 15 to 17%, uh, we have a global responsibility and I think we're being embarrassed into a situation where the government won't recognise that reality but BHP, for example, a significant exporter of thermal coal is moving away from the export of thermal coal and is actually looking at putting targets, sort of what they call source three targets. They want to know where the coal that they're presently selling goes and whether they're dealing with it effectively. And so they they won't, in fact, they're saying they won't, in fact, sell coal to some countries if indeed they're not going to meet certain environmental standards in relation to that. Now, that's what we should be doing as a country. Our largest, one of the largest companies in the world, certainly one of the largest mining companies in the world, is setting a benchmark and we've got a tin ear up on the top of the hill here which just wants to ignore it. So... So, uh, thank you, John. Uh, Shane, uh, let's move from the global stage that John was talking about to the local stage. You're Minister for Climate Change here in the Territory. The ACT now has 100% renewable energy. Uh, the Territory Government has committed to all new ACT government offices and public schools being powered by that electricity. You're shifting Canberra's bus network to zero emissions by 2040. So I've got two questions for you. The first is, where does the ACT go next in terms of tackling climate change? And secondly, does the do these things definitively prove once and for all that the ACT is a better place to live than Sydney or Melbourne? <laughs> that bit was never up for debate. Uh, Look, it's been a terrific achievement to get to 100% renewable electricity and one of the things I'm excited about is that there's a bit of Canberra pride building around that, which is really nice to feel. Uh, my favourite part of it is it means that Parliament House will now be 100% powered by renewable electricity. <laughs> and Scott Morrison and his mates can stick that where the coal should go. Uh, look, we've still got a big challenge ahead of us. By going to 100% renewable electricity, we have cut our emissions by 40% below 1990 levels. That's a great start, and it's kind of roughly where the scientists are telling us we should be now. We've committed to get to zero net emissions by 2045, but we've st- we're getting into the hard part. I've said before, getting to 100% renewable electricity was relatively easy. The government just set the policy. You know, it's good policy. We went about it, we got it done, we've been able to do it in an affordable way, but no one in the community has really had to do anything different. People just still flick the switch, the lights come on, it's all good. After this... 60-plus percent of our emissions will come from transport, which is mostly just us Canberrans driving around, doing our thing. We don't have big industrial fleets of trucks. It's us in the private motor vehicle. And another 22% comes from natural gas use. And in this city, we've been trained that natural gas is a clean and cheap source of power to heat our homes and our offices and the like. So we've got some big work to do to sort of now talk to the community about significantly changing practices that are very ingrained in our day-to-day lives. So the next phase of action, I think, is going to be much more challenging and one we need to, as a government, really talk to the community about to say, hey, together, we've got a hard job to do. 
Thanks for that, Shane. Now, I want to take a slightly different tack for the next question and throw something to the audience again. I come from a background in journalism before I came to work for ANU, and I'm very interested in the role of language and how declaring a climate emergency might... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Start to change the narrative and might start to change people's thinking. I was very interested that earlier this year, The Guardian changed its style guide uh, so that it no longer used the term climate change, but instead it talked about a climate crisis or a climate emergency in all of its pieces. It made some other related changes at the time. It stopped using the term climate skeptic. It uses climate denier instead. So I'm interested in getting the audience's views on how the media should be reporting these issues. So once again, we have another question for you on menti.com. And the question is, uh, does language, does the language used in mainstream media accurately reflect the severity of the climate issues we face? I think I know what the answer is here, but I am interested in your views. So please, if you could vote now. Martin, I think it depends on what media you read. <laughs> Is anyone from the Australian in the audience, just in case? Okay, this is going to make great podcast content, this silence here. Uh, so let me just kind of commentate as we go. So people are still voting at the moment. No uh, is way out in the lead with 50 votes. A yes is on 10 votes and four people have n- never thought about it. Five people have never thought about it. So, okay, as everyone finished there. So, Sharon, can you see those? Does anything in there surprise you? No, not really. <laughs> it's probably, I mean, I think, I think the question of what do we mean by mainstream media, so maybe it depends at which media you're looking at as to how you'd answer that. The five people who've never thought about it, I suspect, will now, so that question will probably change. Or that that response will probably change. Wonderful. All right. Well, thank you very much for that. So uh, we have done our first section. Now we're going to move on to uh, talking a little about some of the sort of pros and cons around declaring a climate emergency. Um, And uh, Liz, I'm keen to start with you. We've seen a list of countries who've already declared a climate emergency Uh, Some have connected this with promises to align policy and redirect investment to renewables. Other countries, Argentina, for example, have declared an emergency but only as a symbolic gesture. Will a a declaration in Australia have an effect beyond mere symbolism? Uh, Yep. That's the short answer. (laughs) Is there a slightly longer one? Oh, okay. okay. You want a few more details? from my perspective, health is 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 my area where I where I fuddle and play in all the time, and of course climate science and get depressed. The, it's the psychology, and so changing the language uh, and declaring that alters. In many respects, people like to be sort of part of the club, 
Um, and if they're realising that they're missing out on something and the rest of the world are beginning to think this is an emergency, then they challenge themselves, which is also why using champions is always such a, you know, a really powerful media tool to get uh, people that they like because that will encourage people to be a bit more sheep-like, really. Um, and particularly when we realise that as far as people changing their, you know, their sort of cognitive thinking about these things... Some people, it's like we have different learning styles, you know, you know whether we listen audially, um, orally or visually. The science, the science base, there are others who are more on the values, more on where they get their trust from, and all that gets factored in together into a great big soup, really. Um, and I firmly think that if we, if we declare an emergency... Um, and that sort of ripples out with little ponds going everywhere, and, and we're doing it certainly in the in the health sector. Um, the major health organisations and medical organisations around the world are calling it a, a health emergency. Um, again, using the another way of getting into the public mindset uh, from a mob, a mob, the health mob, who don't have a vested interest in this at all. You know, we don't stand to profit from any of it. Um, our role is to is to keep people better, and we're actually quite tired of people coming in from the because health determinants live outside the hospitals. So people are becoming ill from policies and from things going on outside. They come to our doors, and we're supposed to patch them up and then send them straight back to whatever made them sick again. Which is why we think we have a moral responsibility to actually change it, and particularly when we can see that. We really need to do something about this. So where the health people are calling it a health a health emergency, um, and we actually think it has a very important role in changing the psychology, um, where people actually start thinking that maybe I better do something about it, even me, and that's what we. Lisa, I, I really like to comment you made then when you said that. Um, People come to the hospital sick, but it's policies that are making them sick. And I think that's such an important way of thinking about policy in terms of what impact do they have on human pe- human beings, on their health, on their well-being. And Imran, not necessarily on that particular issue, but more broadly from your perspective, what would declaring a climate emergency mean for policy in Australia and for climate policy particularly? Uh, thanks, Sharon. Uh, I- I, I would agree, basically, that declaring climate emergency is 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 just one part, uh, one part of uh, uh, of a commitment or an action. It's not really an action. It's it's really saying that you you agree. Uh, in Australia, what's what's really important is actually moving ahead uh, from that because we've already ha- have a lag, uh, really had a lag in terms of at the Commonwealth level, state levels. Uh, we've seen much more action uh, in ACT, in Victoria, uh, in South Australia, and others. There, there, are, there have been significant uh, uh, state and territory level actions. I would, I would really want the, uh, to see a policy commitment in terms of uh, in terms of uh, mitigation commitment so that uh, the their signal is sent to the private sector. The business is very key, uh, like. Uh, John has said the business uh, is uh, is asking uh, for a carbon price. I think there is there, there have been statements out there. The business wants to wants to see leadership on the way uh, from the government. Um, I would also like to point out that we should not 
put all the hands in the government side. Uh, I think the business and the communities also have a particular role. Um, and I'll give the example uh, of Germany where they've done um, a fabulous work um, on renewable energy, but were, but were slow on, on the transport side because of uh, uh, Volkswagen and, and BMWs. They weren't pushing EVs hard as they were pushing uh, renewable energy. So I think the more we have green businesses, the more pressure we get from businesses also helps the policy process. Thanks, Imran. John, one of the, the arguments against moving too far, too fast around climate is the impacts on the economy. What would be the impact on the economy, on the Australian economy, of declaring a climate emergency? An economist's perspective, please. In and of itself, it, it doesn't necessarily have any impact. It's what action they take on the basis of that. And I've never believed that it has to be a negative in terms of response to climate. I think it produces so many opportunities. And an obvious one is we are an exporter of fossil fuels. We could be an exporter of renewable energy, export of hydrogen, export of solar power. There are projects now being developed in northern Australia to do exactly that. Uh, and, um, you know, so it's the transition that's important. Uh, okay, you'll be moving away from activity in coal mines and coal-fired power stations to be replaced by other activities uh, in the, in the, that have as much, at least as much export potential as the existing activities. And um, I just see so many opportunities where we could, we could actually stimulate new businesses. I used the example before of lithium and, and graphite. We're one of the few countries that has both resources. Our graphite resources, millions of tonnes of graphite, high-quality graphite in the Air Peninsula of South Australia, not mined at all. And we've just seen a, an emergence of lithium mines. But we could have mining industries in those two areas. We can turn that into a battery industry. We can turn that into a storage process for our, our power generation. I mean, there's so much potential off what we've already got that nobody wants to focus on and think about. And uh, so you can go right across the opportunities that are there. So there is a transition problem, yes, and it does take time. And there will be some initial negative effects. But why would you just close a power station in Victoria without any transition at all, having a dramatic impact on the Latrobe Valley or, or the um, northern power station uh, in Port Augusta, just closed, no transition? If you've planned the transition, people needed to be re-employed, retrained, relocated, supported, whatever, uh, that's the function that we should be looking at, focusing on that transition, not on... You know, whether we should or shouldn't be doing it, it's too late for that. We should definitely be doing it. We're late into the game. We have opportunities everywhere. We should capitalise on that. And why are we not capitalising on those opportunities? Apart from the fact that uh, there are people on the hill here that, that don't want to agree. And we just had a national party dinner, right, to define one of the political forces in this country. There was no acknowledgement of country at the start of that dinner. And they did two things. One, they had a stall selling Startadani T-shirts, not Stopadani T-shirts, and they auctioned that lump of coal that Morrison... They got $800 for that. Now, this is a mentality that exists that has to be, has to be broken. I thought one of the most telling anecdotes in recent times was the last initiative, I think, that Theresa May took before she left the job as Prime Minister was to declare a climate emergency in the UK... And this is a country that led the Industrial Revolution on the basis of coal. I remember the painful, divisive 
you know, mining strikes under Margaret Thatcher and they've actually made pretty much a transition away from coal. But on the same day she did that, we gave the final approval for the Adani mine. That should tell you where we sit in this country and what politics thinks about it. Presently now there are National Party members in Queensland running around saying, we have a mandate for new coal mines and for new coal-fired power stations in North Queensland. Even though there's no power demand there, no net demand in North Queensland, even though it's cheaper to do it by renewables, even though nobody will finance it unless it's the government, no, no insurance company will insure it, but that's a policy. And that's, that's a disaster, quite frankly. It it's really is grossly irresponsible behaviour. Thank you, John. I'm still reeling from the fact that someone would have paid $800 for that lump of coal. Shane, I'd like to turn from the policy to the personal for a second and ask you, how would declaring a climate emergency affect the most vulnerable in our societies? Let me just reflect briefly on the issue of language, which you were touching on before as well, because I think when people think about an emergency... They literally think of some vehicle flying down the road with the flashing lights on, sirens wailing. And climate change is a different kind of emergency. So there's a really interesting, going back to the earlier discussion, reshaping of community expectations about what an emergency looks like and therefore how you need to respond. There is no question that climate change will have a significant impact on the most vulnerable in our community. And it's in lots of different ways. Uh, people who are marginalised just generally don't cope well with change. And there is going to be a lot of change from climate change, whether it is transitioning to a clean economy or whether it is dealing with the significant physical impacts of bushfire, floods, severe storms, all of the things that are part of the equation. There's obviously a lot of discussion around about the idea of a just transition. And I think we need to make sure that we don't just talk about that, but again, we begin to action it. I'll give you a really local and practical example. As the ACT government, we've said we want to move to having 100% electric bus fleet. Right now, we have a team of diesel mechanics that service our buses. Now, if we start to get rid of those, they're going to be out of a job. We can't just leave them on the scrap heap. Similarly, John talked about the closure of the Hazelwood coal mine. I mean, that was, frankly, an outrage where essentially a private company decided it wasn't, wasn't worth investing in their coal-fired power station anymore that needed to be made, so they just shut it down. You know, all this debate about whether it's ideologically right or wrong, they just... They couldn't be bothered paying for it anymore. And we suddenly saw a community with no transition plan, despite the fact that the environment movement for 10, 15 years had been arguing to close Hazelwood down with a transition plan to start building wind turbines in the valley and those sort of things. So I think the just transition part of it is going to be incredibly important uh, to make sure that as a community we move forward together and we don't break the social contract. Terrific. I just want to add one. Imran, please do come in. One of the things that is that is often forgotten that um, the new coal, uh, solar and wind is now cheaper than um, is cost competitive with new coal plants, and I think it's it's really crucial. We're talking about communities here, and we we need to do the uh, just transition so that they they transition. That debate, that policy debate, hasn't even started here, and that is very very important. You can't just switch off a coal plant. I mean, if it's private sector, they will do it. But you, the government has to really uh, lead the show in terms of uh, offering that transition. Terrific. Liz? There was a question to John in terms of the um, economic cost of calling a, uh, calling a climate emergency. Um, what he probably didn't have time and, and would, would have been happy to add 
is that the cost of not doing it yeah. is absolutely massive and blows it out of the water. And there's an enormous amount of information out there in terms of the cost of delaying. And this, this is where it ends up fracturing lives, communities, the disadvantaged always first, which then takes on to the second thing I wanted to say is that GDP is a very pathetic measure for advancements and well-being of a, of a community. Um, things like we know that GDP would go up if we had a massive disaster and, and took out Sydney. You know, be, well, maybe, I don't know, Cairns perhaps. Um, because of the building that goes on. And so it doesn't, you know, all that extra expenditure ends up in the positive basket of GDPs. And John's clearly much better able to discuss this than me, a health person. Um, except for the fact that that passes down to, to um, disadvantaged and, and that can be multi-generation going through, et cetera, and you end up with, you know, people on the scrap heap. And that's, um, that's clearly not where we're wanting to go. Terrific, thanks. Now, I would like to open this up to audience questions now. So, Lydia, if you could perhaps roll on the next slide for us. We want to hear what questions you have for our panel. Please type them in once again on menti.com using that code. Uh, keep your responses nice and short. Uh, we might want to ask you about those questions. Uh, so please keep them on topic and refrain from using the type of language that I use when I'm talking about Brexit on the podcast. It's not pretty, is it, Sharon? It is not pretty, no. But it's also not pretty when, you know, him, when you're talking about, you know, my love for Crystal Palace. But that's okay. <laughs> so uh, let's get some of those questions up. Okay. Uh, I am going to pick one of these questions out. There's some really good questions there, actually. Um Liz, maybe I'm going to ask this one of you. You've got a disadvantage because you can't actually see these questions. But there's a question which says, how do we overcome the it's not my problem rhetoric? Uh, that, that It's a terrific question because it's a terrific problem. Um, and that's, in many respects, the nub of why we're in this position. Um, because people don't think it's their responsibility. People have been thinking it's government's responsibility. People think it's China's responsibility, America's responsibility. It's everybody else's responsibility. It's certainly not mine. Um, uh, and so we certainly do need to change that. How do we change that? Difficult. Um, we've been trying to trying to do that. One of the ways that we, uh, again, which is why we developed the Climate and Health Alliance, uh, was to use that as a, as a mechanism of, again, collating uh, all health organisations who are concerned about this, uh, including the psychologists, I might add, getting them on board with giving us advice in terms of strategies of how to, how to actually change that. Um, and so... <clears throat> um, I've forgotten where I was going. I had a good thing that I was heading for, and it's gone. Um, okay, it, well, wasn't, it wasn't a definitive answer. I'll, I'll have to confess that. Uh, is that a climate impact? <laughs> going senile. Yeah. Um, there are two questions here that I'll roll together. One is your views on extinction, extinction rebellion and civil disobedience, and then following that, why should we not engage in non-violent civil disobedience to pro prompt action by the federal government? Can I just ask who asked those questions? <laughs> Good on you. Thank you. Thank you for asking. I really like those questions. I'm really interested in the panel's There is no view. video here, of course. It's all <laughs> That's great. Who would like to respond to that? I'll start. Uh, as someone who worked for Greenpeace before I went into politics, 
I've spent a fair portion of my time thinking about how to undertake illegal activities. It's probably not a great thing to admit in my current job. I'm also the Minister for Justice, but look, I'm actually... <laughs> and I run the jail. Um, but I'm really excited by the rise of Extinction Rebellion because what it says to me, and it goes to the previous question, is you know, people are fed up, they are angry, and they are starting to rise up and demand better response by government and by default by the business community and a range of others. And I think it's empowering for people. A lot of people find the climate issue disempowering because it's so huge, it seems so beyond their control. And the exciting part of Extinction Rebellion is it provides a pathway for people to voice their desire for change, their frustration, their anger in a non-violent, peaceful way uh, that is, I think, very effective and is driving a significant debate in this country. There's another question that I'm keen to pick up on there, which I think is really nicely phrased, which is how can we balance the need for people to be mentally prepared for the effects of climate change with the burden of eco-anxiety? I wonder if, again, Liz, this is something you might like to respond to. Um, thank you. And uh, thank you for the question, because that was exactly why I was wanting to wanting to pop in here. Um, climate anxiety, climate grief is um, is a huge and growing condition that certainly exists amongst the climate scientists um, and people who spend their day puddling around getting more and more and more and more depressed as they read all these reports coming around as to how close we're getting to um, uh, this parlour state. Uh, what we do know, of course, is the best way, the best remedy for that is to actually get involved in the solution. And this is where the Extinction Rebellion is... Because, I mean, people have options. They either think, well, I can't do anything, or they get involved. And then they actually get the camaraderie of other people doing it. And it's psychologically, if you feel as if you're working towards a solution, then it's, it's, there's an enormous amount of uh, psychological research to demonstrate the fact that this is very, very, very protective of your mental health. It doesn't mean that we don't have, you know, down days. I certainly do. Um, but it's certainly very, very protective in terms of stopping people um, throwing their arms up in despair and, and throwing their arms up in despair. Thank you for those questions. They're a fantastic set of questions. And you probably saw Martin and I gesturing at one another as we both kind of wanted to ask a few more questions. But I'm going to slip in just one more. Um, John, this one for you, initially at least, I think. Do we need to transition to a no-growth economy in the long term? Well, I don't think so, although the concept of growth, as was said, is, is, is very limited. I mean, to just focus on GDP, which ignores the cost of achieving that in terms of environmental impact and, and, and poor governance and, and other, other failures of that system, I mean, we do need a broader debate and we do need an index of happiness and index of satisfaction and, and so on, health and well-being, as ju not just GDP. But there is plenty of growth opportunities, GDP opportunities, in a proper transition. And so you don't need to go to a no-growth world. Uh, growth has, to some extent, compounded it because we have not worried about the environmental consequences of that growth. And although we've done some things about some elements of pollution, we haven't done much about other elements of pollution. For example, if I dump asbestos on your front lawn, I'll go to jail, and and, and probably Shane's jail, and and um, and, and pay, a, pay pay an enormous enormous penalty if I, if I pollute a river the same. But it's okay to pump pollution into the atmosphere through, through a coal-fired power station, which does much multiples of the damage, or to pump 
you know, dirty fuel out the back of your car. I mean, I think the, the numbers shown in a study in Victoria, 40% more people die from pollution, particular pollution from vehicles than, than the national road toll. I mean, these are big numbers, big health health consequences. So I, I think that, um, you know, there, there are elements of just going for growth, but you can go for growth in a measured way where you do consider those consequences. And if you have a price on carbon, you start to pay for that pollution one way or another, uh, then, of course, behaviour changes. I'll just say one other thing. On, on growth, it, everyone says, oh, it's a big negative. I remember 15 years ago I was on the board of a printing company and a printing company, and those are big printing presses, you know, and they use a lot of power, a lot of transport and logistics. And I said as a director, we should look at our carbon footprint. Now, they thought I'd gone, you know, I dropped off the end somewhere, but we did get an independent consultant to look at it. And that consultant's conclusion was by just reorganising the use of power and the use of transport, not firing people, not cutting this or that, you could reduce the cost base of the business by 25 to 30%. Suddenly I was a genius. You know, this was a great idea and a great initiative, but businesses today are looking at that. They're looking at their carbon footprint or their impact on natural capital and so on, and they're working out that there are benefits in this and it's the transition is worth making anyway. Households have been doing it with, you know, energy-efficient appliances, solar panels on the roof, all sorts of responses. Liz, you had something to say there. Yeah, yeah just a, it's a, a great point. Thanks, John. Um, from the, again, the health sector's perspective... You know, our main mantra is first do no harm. And so when the health sectors around the world started looking at their own footprint and realised, goodness gracious me, we are contributing to this thing that we think is really bad. So there's a mob now called Healthcare Without Harm and they are, they're global now and they're, they're organising this program of global green and healthy hospitals, GGHH. The stuff is on the line. There are thousands and thousands of hospitals, including and clinics, including in Australia, that have signed up to this, making the, the, the transition easy because it, not every little place has to go and reinvent the wheel as to how they best yeah. do that. What they're finding is that once they do do these things to limit their footprint, limit their waste and their you know energy and water resources... The bottom line is is wonderful. So we're using this as an example. If if major hospitals like the Alfred Hospital can uh, save money by being more um, more environmentally conscious, then then and, and they're such complex organisations, then other businesses can do it too. That's right. One of the aspects of growth is, of course, that there's a lot of waste generated in that process, and if you can recycle that in a circular economy sense, you are you can actually both create new economic activity and reduce emissions. If you think about the waste from any industry, I mean, agriculture is finally realising that they can be net negative emissions by, by recycling their waste and changing their farming practices. And farmers can be better off because they can sell the carbon credits they generate by increasing the carbon content of the soil and you know, have, a better, have an additional income, carry them through difficult periods of drought, making the soil more resistant to drought and so on. There are so many benefits if you think through each sector that's possible that, that are just being ignored and, um, and glossed over. We, the government's spending $7 billion in cash handouts to farmers and, and regional communities and doing nothing to improve the resilience of the soil to minimise the impact of the droughts, you know, which are going to get more frequent and more intense as climate change runs on. Imran. Um, I, I want to add to this uh, by saying that the model 
of growth that we've known. Um, and, and growth is essentially the only way that we have seen evidence of alleviating poverty and, and seeing the larger sort of uh, 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 living improvements. Now, there are distributional aspects, and that's where inclusive growth comes in. Uh, in the last uh, 20 years, 25 years, you've, you've, the, the, the concept of green growth has come in. And then uh, the idea is decoupling, basically, your, your, your emissions uh, from your growth model. And, and we have seen that is happening. There are evidence uh, from uh, Europe and from China, in, in particular, which is now sort of uh, on a on a on a, on a uh, is is applying that. So, so I think that we have to be very careful at this point. Although there's there's discourse around no growth by Tim Jackson and others, but, but what we haven't, in in my sort of understanding of this concept, we haven't seen poverty alleviated without growth. So, so I think we we, we need to think of better models of growth. That are inclusive, that are sustainable, that is that are gr- that is green. Thank you for those questions that triggered that excellent conversation, John. You said we need new indices, new measures. You, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe we need an individual level measure of multidimensional deprivation yes. that's sensitive to gender and vulnerable groups. I, I gave you. <laughs> hey, a I think I know of one of those. Yeah, <laughs> they may have. We may have one of those here. <laughs> Okay, so uh, for the next section, we want to just briefly touch on uh, places that have already taken action, that have already made some kind of climate declaration. We have around the globe seen countries and cities, for example, Seville and Wellington, declare climate emergencies. The UK has made a climate emergency uh, declaration so that all policy decisions going forward are made with the climate in mind. Uh, The UK leader, Jeremy Corbyn, spoke very passionately in Parliament talking about protests happening outside Parliament. And he said, and I just want to quote this, he said he felt felt inspired by children chanting, our planet, our future. It was inspiring, but also humbling that children felt they had to leave school to teach us adults a lesson. The truth is they are ahead of the politicians on this the most important issue of our time. Today we have the opportunity to say, we hear you. It was a brilliant moment, a moment of decisiveness and clarity from Jeremy Corbyn and one that people probably wouldn't recognise from his positions on Brexit over the last few years. But uh, we have a quick pop quiz question for you. You're in an educational establishment, so you can't get out without having some kind of test. So uh, the question is, Australia's federal government may not be doing much, but some Australian cities, on the other hand, have been a little more active. So let's test you the audience's knowledge. Which of the following cities have already declared a climate emergency? So you have 12 seconds left to cast your votes. For the benefits of our podcast listeners, it says Sydney, Adelaide, Melbourne, all or none. One second left, and time's up. All right. Well, there you go. So uh, some surprising results there, Sharon. Can you see this? I, I can. And Sue tells me that Darwin declared yesterday a climate emergency. Martin, we've actually seen around 60 subnational governments across Australia, mostly at council level. Lots of council level, that's all right. Yeah, but the ACT being the only state or territory so far. And so what it shows is that I think also 
people's frustration at the lack of leadership at a federal level is bubbling up in that from that really grassroots level and you see that coming through from the local councils particularly. To each of you following up from that, it's not just policymakers that can act on climate change and you've already made that point that it's not just government alone that can, can um, make a change here. We had seen universities such as um, in the UK, the University of Bristol, Exeter and, UK, Exeter and Newcastle, put their best foot forward and declare climate emergencies themselves. Given that we're hosting this debate at ANU, what do you think universities could do to drive climate action? Um, Sue, perhaps if we start with you and we'll, we'll move along the panel, asking each of you, yeah, what can we do at within our universities? Uh, call it would be step one. Um, and again, we know that there are still pockets of people who are reticent um, and are still in this, as we touched on earlier, who still actually think that it's not really my problem or indeed it's not our business. We're certainly finding this in the medical world. Um, so there will, without doubt, be, be lecturers teaching people here and students and who, who are not of this uh, of this mindset? Um, so we would argue that uh, if ANU were to, and we'd highly recommend they do, uh, declare a climate emergency, then that because you get, as I was mentioning earlier, you get this little ripple effect. So you'd get the various units doing what they could do to ramp up their action, and then that becomes infective. Um, and so people go home, and then they start doing what they can do at work at, at home, and then they start talking about it. They're, golf club and tennis club and, and you know, with their other families and other, other parts of Australia. So, um, yep, I think that's definitely should do it. And again, starting up the action, which means reducing waste and thinking about our usage of, of everything, your purchasing decisions, you know, whether they're, you're purchasing local, you know, that whole gamut. And I would imagine most people sitting here would realise strategies that are required to do that. So, yes. Shane, do you have thoughts on what universities can and should be doing? As it happens, I've just written to the Vice-Chancellor of each of the major educational institutions in the ACT because they've all got massive capital works programs coming. The University of New South Wales is about to build a new campus in this city. You see ANU are all spending hundreds of millions of dollars expanding their campuses. Those capital works will still be standing in 2045 when we need to be a zero net emission city. And so I've asked each of the Vice-Chancellors what role they're going to play in those capital works programs to make sure that they're building the sort of, uh, I guess, built environments that will actually reflect the state of climate emergency. And so I think that's the first point. They can start on their own grounds. Uh, the second, of course, is that uh, the research they're doing has great potential. You know, as an ANU alumni, I'm really proud of the fact that the Energy Change Institute here is thinking about how do we make Asia, how do we help Asia become a zero carbon in the future. It's a massive project under the ANU Grand Challenge and if we can pull that off from here at ANU we can make a global contribution well beyond uh, you know, what, what people might expect to come out of you know, an Australian national university. So they're the sort of contributions and finally I would say we need our academics to speak up. Now, this is a long debated question but uh, scientists of course are sometimes a bit fearful of putting their views out there and uh, we need to have our scientists speaking very clearly, speaking the truth, and being very clear with our political leaders, the urgency of the situation. Imran. Yeah, I'd add to this, uh, uh, um, this by saying that I think in terms of action, what, what would be also be useful uh, would be looking at you know, divestment 
um, would would also be looking at uh, using. Um, I mean, uh, Shane pointed out in the Capital Works program. This uh, I would add to this, uh, looking at the energy uh, sort of uh, sector and switching to renewables. Uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. I mean, there's universities spend a lot of money on uh, on their utility bills, and, and uh, there is there is a cost saving uh, there as well. So, really demonstrating the sort of there's a research coming out and demonstrating in their in in their actions on ground in terms of implementing sustainability. So that would be really crucial. John, uh, I believe we've got Brian Schmidt on the phone right now. He's just coming into my ear. You, I'm sure yeah, he's not really. But uh, you, I'm sure you have his ear. What would you say to him? Should ANU declare a climate emergency? Well, yeah, I think so, because we've had a number of the elements. We've talked about courses and, and, uh, and buildings and, and um, possibility of rooftop solar generating your own energy. I mean, it, it's all part and parcel. I mean, the universities are in a position where people expect them to lead. If some of the climate scientists of the world that have led this debate, uh, in terms of their actions, they should lead. And I think signing up as a, on a climate emergency makes makes an enormous amount of sense to me that uh, that they would they would you know embrace it and carry it through. But it's a leadership role. I mean, in one other dimension of university, which is important, I ran a project globally called Asset Owners Disclosure Project, where we survey rated and ranked all the big asset owners of the world as to where they invested their money and how much of it was exposed in climate-exposed investments. I also sent that letter to universities. And what are you doing with your endowment funds and how are you managing them and how much have you got in fossil fuels? Because the number was alarmingly high in terms of fossil fuels and climate exposures compared to what was, say, invested in renewable energy or low-carbon-intensive investments. And one of the funny things that happened was that Monash University's chief financial officer got the letter and he contacted the big eight and he said, basically, let's piss these guys off. The only mistake he made was he sent me that letter as well. <laughs> and so we ran a program on the 7.30 report, which, which drove them eventually to rethink their entire investment strategy. Uh, and uh, it's happened as, uh, more broadly in the superannuation and pension industry and so on. So, yeah, universities can set the benchmarks and they can lead and they should. Thank you so much, and I'm sure Brian Schmidt was uh, listening to that. So we've got another question for you, uh, and I'm going to put this to you, and then I'm going to hand over to Sharon to ask our sort of final question. The the final question for you, our audience, is you've heard a whole bunch of ideas from the panel about what the sort of priorities for tackling this issue should be, but we want to hear your thoughts. What should Australia's top priority be in improving its climate response? So please put in your response now. And perhaps whilst you're doing that, Sharon, if you would like to skip on to the next question, we can have a look at these in a sec. So we've just talked about um, what it is that universities might be able to do. As we close tonight, let me ask each of you, if you had one recommendation to policymakers, and Shane, I guess you have insider knowledge here, (laughs) but if each of you had one recommendation to policymakers on how to best address the global climate crisis, what would it be? And Shane, maybe we can start with you this time. I think the answer is we just have to start. You know, it's that old proverb of how do you eat an elephant where you start with the first bite and you go forward from there. It requires commitment. 
bit of boldness, but mostly just the will to actually take the steps and go forward. Uh, we've learned a lot by doing in the ACT, and once you get started, you realise it's not as hard as it might seem. You just have to set yourselves the goals and aim for it. You definitely won't get there if you don't start. Liz, one piece of advice that you would give to policymakers. Limited to one. <laughs> um, it's yes. A thing that I'm that I constantly barrage them about is that needing to remember why they are there. Their responsibility is to do collectively on behalf of us for the betterment of of the citizenry. Uh, stuff that we can't do for ourselves. So have that priority and given the fact that we know that the harm that's coming, then all stops, all stops need to go out. Um, and as Shane will have noticed, once you start that process, you find all manner of people coming on board to help you. You find industry and, and sort of like it's like a, a rolling stone gathers no moss. There's all manner of stuff to come through. So that would be my advice is to remember why they are there and who they're serving. Imran, well, oh, <laughs> good to applaud. Uh, Imran, what would your piece of advice so be? It would be it would, it's it's basically very simple. Listen to latest scientific research, and get into action. Simple as that. We we don't have time to debate this any further. We need real action. That's it. It's 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 out there. And this won't be the final word on the topic, but perhaps the final word for tonight, John. Well, I think as politicians, they should listen to their constituents. I mean, every poll or survey in recent years has had 60 to 80 percent of people wanting government-led action on climate. About 80 plus percent want you know, move to renewables. We've got all layers of the community now calling for action. The big, the big miners, the big farmers, the big farming organisations, uh, large parts of civil society. We've got all sorts of student protests and, and uh, Extinction Rebellion type protests and so on. Listen and then respond. I mean, represent the interests of your constituents. I think that's a nice way to, to, to finish when we talk about the consensus emerging within the community amongst so many different groups and the scientific and research consensus. So thank you, everyone, for a really great discussion. Uh, as I said in the beginning, uh, if you want to listen back to the panel, uh, we will be publishing this discussion on Policy Forum Pod tomorrow. Uh, you can find the pod wherever you get your podcasts from. Or if you've got any feedback or questions that you would like to send to us, please do so. Feel free to contact us. The best way to do that is to join our Facebook podcast group, we are Policy Forum Pod on there. Uh, we'd also like to thank, once again, uh, the ANU Learning Communities for putting together this fantastic event. It's been so great working with you. Uh, Sharon and I, of course, would also like to thank our fellow Pod Squad members, uh, Yulia Ahrens and Lydia Kim over there for their amazing work, uh, Liliana Casabon Mitchell for her research, and Marvin Vestal for writing a really great piece on Policy Forum, setting out some of the issues which you should definitely give a read to if you haven't already. And of course, we'd like to extend a huge thanks to our brilliant expert panel. So please put your hands together and thank Shane Ranbury, Liz Hanna, John Houston and Imrad Ahmad. If you're updating your closet for summer, 
You need dependable clothes that you can wear anywhere, whatever you're doing. And for that, you can look to American Giant. American Giant makes clothing of exceptional quality for people who want something more than the status quo offers. Whether you need to re-up on reliable everyday t-shirts, pick up a solid pair of shorts, or invest in a pair of durable jeans, American Giant is a better choice. They make everything right here in the USA, from start to finish. So when you buy from American Giant, you become part of creating jobs and improving local communities in towns and cities all across the country. And keeping things local ensures the kind of quality you'll feel and appreciate for years to come. Shop your new summertime closet staples at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your order when you use code WA23 at checkout. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com with promo code WA23.